Man, would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at that Luke 7 chapter together. Lord, we thank you for this day. I thank you for the time that we have to gather together as your people. I thank you as we, we come together each week that uh, you, you refocus us on you and that you are everything. That it uh, helps us to see clearly uh, your place in our life. And so we pray this morning as we spend time in your word, uh, lifting our voices together, partaking of communion, that you would remind us clearly uh, that you are everything, that you hold all things together, uh, that we find our being in you. I pray that that would be made abundantly clear to us today, that we would see and recenter and refocus on you as being the center of all things. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life-giving, uh, that you teach us, you correct us, you show us, you shape us through your word. And so we ask that as we open it this morning that you would do just that. We pray that the Spirit would move freely in this place, that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, that you would be the one that takes the eternal truth of your word and applies it to our hearts and our minds, and that we would leave here uh, having been changed, having seen you more clearly for who you are. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I, my wife, Joanna, and I were talking uh, the other day, and she was uh, relating a, a conference I think she went to last year. And uh, at this conference, they started out, uh, the speaker started out with one of the talks. Uh, and he asked the question, he said, how many of you, if you had the opportunity, would go back to college, like your college years? And she said, you know, it was a big room of people. And she said there were several hands that went up. It were kind of like, yeah, that'd be great to go back to college. And then she said, OK, how many of you would go back to high school? And some of the hands went down and there were a few. And then the last question was, and how many of you would go back to middle school if you could? And all the hands went down, all of them. Nobody raised their hands for the idea of going back uh, to middle school. And, and, and part of what this talk was and what they came was was how to deal with bullying and different things and that kind of stuff. And that's where they were going. Uh, but the picture there, and I think uh, when we start to talk that way or think that way, like, would you want to go back to middle school? And you go, I don't think so. Right. Middle, middle school is one of those hard transition periods where there's lots of changes physically, emotionally. You, you start to become more self-aware. You start to care what people think a lot more. Right. You go from this age of kind of elementary and a kid where you're kind of carefree and you don't worry so much. And then all of a sudden you're worried about what people think of you and the way they look at you and the way they perceive you. And all those things start to come flooding in. And so when we think about that, maybe for you, middle school was great. But maybe when we think back on that, you go, yeah, there was some hard, hard times, some awkward times in middle school. And maybe when we start to think about it, even bringing that back, maybe some of those voices and some of those times come flooding back into your life and you go, yeah, I don't want to go back to middle school. But, but the truth is, for some of us, it may not have even been middle school in our life. There may have been voices in our life that we never had to leave the home to hear uh, that maybe we didn't measure up or that we struggled or we didn't look as pretty as we should or we weren't as smart as we should or whatever that may be. Hopefully they weren't coming from inside your home, but sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's other people speaking that into you. But the truth is, when we grow up and we, we have those things that come into our life, they stick with us for a long time. Uh, oftentimes we can still struggle with those voices that we heard in the past that said, maybe you're not good enough or not smart enough or not athletic enough, or we're constantly comparing. Or, or maybe it's just an internal voice that you have that does that at different times. And, and I think sometimes those things, uh, we grow up with that and it comes into our life. And what ends up happening as we become adults is we still struggle with those things. And, and so we seek to justify ourselves uh, in, in different ways. Uh, oftentimes it ends up 
uh, what starts out like in middle school or those ages. It, it does the same thing in adulthood, just in different ways. We compare ourselves with other people. We get our self-worth and our identity, what people think of us, what they place on us and what they say about us. Or we just start to kind of internally do that and we compare the, the stuff we have. We live in a very consumer driven culture. And so a lot of times that's where we start to do this. We, we compare the, the cars we drive or the house we live in or the job we have or the things that culture would say make us important or successful or whatever those things. And so we deal with those things, even as adults. We deal with them in different wrappings in different ways, but those things that we saw coming to fruition in middle school are still happening today in our adult lives. And so what often happens is we do that. We end up comparing ourselves to other people. Uh, sometimes we try to put other people down because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And we struggle with those kind of dynamics and they're in our lives and you, you see them in your work and in and, and, uh, your neighborhoods or wherever you live or wherever you go, you still see those things around us. And I start there today because the passage we're going to look at in Luke chapter seven is Jesus is going to walk right into the middle of all sorts of these dynamics going on. And what we're going to see is Jesus walks into the middle of it is we're going to see how he responds to it, how the truth, the word made flesh steps in and perfectly responds to it. But we're also going to see what he says that can that can free you from those comparisons. What Jesus says here and what he tells us and what he teaches when he tells the story that we're going to look at is he shows us the way that we can be freed from those comparisons. He shows us how we don't have to live that way. We don't have to go through life comparing ourselves to other people and getting our self-worth by what people think or the things we have. And so I would say what Jesus does here is a really relevant passage to all of us, wherever you are in that journey in your life and the way you deal with those kind of things around you. And so what we've been doing, we started just last week, doing it this week. I'm just trying to bring out some things in some of these stories that maybe we miss. Uh, a lot of times there's some of the things that happen here in these stories that are very socially uh, of the time that we kind of miss because it's, we're so far removed culturally from it. And I think this story has a lot of those things. And so what I want us to do is just walk through this story together and see kind of what's going on. And then we'll kind of end with what Jesus says and what he teaches us, what he shows us and what he teaches us about how we deal with all this. And so if you would, let's look at this story together. Luke chapter seven, we're going to begin in 36. And it tells us very little in the first verse. One of the Pharisees asked him, talking about Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. Right. And so it sounds like a dinner party, like the guy invited Jesus over to the house and that's it. But what Luke's audience would have known is he just told them a whole lot in one verse that we will miss completely if we don't know some of the cultural background of what's going on. See, what would happen is the Pharisee was one of the ruling class of the day, religious leader. We're going to find out in a minute the guy's name is Simon that invites Jesus to his house. And when he had a dinner or a party like this and invited people in, it was a big community event. He would open the gates to his house and people would realize what was going on and they would hear about the dinner. And what it was is it was an open invitation for the community to come in and be part of it. Now, when he invites the young rabbi, Jesus, this new teacher that people are listening to, uh, that was a big deal. He was kind of a guest of honor to come into this. Now, a lot of the people in the culture would come in and fill in behind the table and listen and be part of what was going on. But they weren't really invited. They were just allowed to come and be part and, and overhear the conversations. And so that's the, the culture that Jesus walks into. 
And so when Luke tells us that Jesus comes and he's invited and he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table, he tells us a lot by what he doesn't tell us. The fact that Jesus comes in and just walks in and sits down at the table. And we're going to see later by what Jesus says to Simon, that Simon didn't do a whole lot of things that would normally be part of this scene. See, somebody like Jesus who's invited into this, the, the rabbi that people want to hear. He's kind of the young guy, but, but people are listening to him. His fame is growing. What would normally have happened if you invited him in for this is you would invite him in and you would welcome him with a kiss. That was the standard greeting. It's kind of like today if somebody comes into your house and they sh- you go to the door and you shake their hand. And you say, come in. I'm glad you're here. You'd welcome them with a kiss. You'd wash their feet. They, they lived in a culture that they wore sandals and they walked on dirt roads. And you come into the house. Oftentimes they would. That was a, a gesture. They would wash your feet. And, and oftentimes they would anoint your head with oil. And this was the customary greeting. It'd be like today when someone comes into your house and you shake their hand. And you say, welcome. Can I take your coat? Can I get you a drink? I'm glad you're here. Those those customary things that we do. That's what would have been expected as Jesus comes into the house. But what Luke tells us is he comes in and he doesn't get any of those things. That he just goes in and he sits down at the table. And, And I think what we see here is what we saw last week when we saw the lawyer approaching Jesus and asking him, what must I do to be saved? Right. And Luke tells us that the lawyer wasn't uh, legitimately asking that question, like, please tell me what I really need to do. He was trying to catch Jesus. He's trying to show him that he was smarter than Jesus. And I think here what you have is Simon invites him and makes this big show. And then he comes in and he ignores him. He just lets him come in. It's a very middle school kind of move, really, if you think about it. It's exactly what Simon's doing. He comes in and he ignores him tries to belittle him, tries to make him look ridiculous. And so Jesus would have been perfectly justified if he's invited to this to walk in and have everybody ignore him and go, "Okay, I'm obviously not wanted here. I'm leaving. He would have been completely justified to do that. And no one would have thought anything of it because of how rude and what a slight that was. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes in and he takes his place at the table and he sits down. He reclines at the table. And so I think what Simon's doing is not an oversight. I think it's very intentional trying to make Jesus look silly. But then the next thing that happens, Luke kind of tells us that there's this woman here. Verse 37. And behold, the woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And so again, there's some social things going on. Right? She would have been one of those people that's kind of milling around that's come in, that's kind of on the back watching what's happening. Uh, it, it makes me wonder if she didn't see when Jesus got here and the way they treated him. Uh, just the fact that she's washing his feet and where she goes to him and how she does that. But what Luke tells us that the audience would have known reading this is when he says she was a woman of the city who was a sinner, and she had an alabaster flask of ointment. But what they would have known very clearly is that this woman is a prostitute. That's who she is. And she snuck her way into kind of the religious leader's party. And here she is. And she comes up and she starts weeping and wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. And she begins to wash them and to wipe them off. And so the scene there is really actually a very scandalous scene for the time. 
Now, now these kind of parties, if it was a normal party and it's not at the house of the Pharisee and it's a normal meal, there probably would have been prostitutes there. There probably would have been prostitutes there even looking for business, possibly. But at a Pharisee's house, you would never do that. You would never uh, approach a man or do that in his house because it would be a huge uh, kind of slight to the Pharisees, the religious, the religious of the religious, the ones that kept the law. And so it's a very kind of scandalous scene for her to be wiping Jesus's feet and being that close to him. And so you have this picture unfolding of what's happening. And I think when we start to see Simon's uh, intentions and what he's looking at and the way he views Jesus is when what he says there. Now, when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And so he kind of calls this out. Now, it says he says to himself, but then it tells us Jesus answers him. And so I don't know exactly reading between the lines how loud he said that was that everybody at the table can hear it. But you see his intentions very clearly. He's trying to make Jesus look dumb. He's pointing out this guy's letting this this prostitute come near him and touch his feet and kiss his feet. If he were truly a prophet, he would understand what's going on. And so that's kind of the background of what's happening in this story. Simon trying to make Jesus look ridiculous. Simon trying to make himself look better by comparing himself to other people. What we know throughout the scriptures in the Gospels is that the the religious leaders of the day were incredibly threatened by Jesus. That Jesus comes in and begins to speak as one who had authority. Jesus didn't quote anybody. Right? He didn't say, uh, the great rabbi so-and-so says this. No, he spoke authoritatively as the word made flesh, God in the flesh. And it scared them and it threatened them. It threatened their power and their position and what people would think of them. And so over and over, we see the Pharisees trying to put Jesus in his place. I'm going to make them look ridiculous. I'll show them. Right. That's what we saw last week of the lawyer. I'll ask them some questions and then I'll show them how smart I am. And so you see the same dynamics going on here as they come in in the picture of what's happening. And I would just submit to you that each one of us is a lot like Simon at different times. When we feel threatened, uh, when we feel belittled, uh, we can easily and when we feel insecure, we can start to do the same thing. We can start to compare ourselves to other people. Uh, we can we can start to make jokes at other people's expense. Right? Take, take the focus off of me and let's laugh at this guy over here. Uh, I think today we do it on social media. We go and we say, look at what this person believes. They're so dumb. I can't believe they believe this. It's, it's a way to make me look smarter. It's, it's a way to make me feel better. Yeah, I may not be perfect, but I don't believe that. And, and so we do those kind of things in our own way all the time. In a lot of ways, we're just like Simon. We do the same stuff. We try to belittle other people. And I'm not saying anybody here is is inviting people over to humiliate them at your house. I hope you're not. But oftentimes we do it in very subtle ways. We compare ourselves. Or, Or maybe we engage in a very subtle form of this when we gossip. Hey, did you hear what so and so did? I can't believe they did that. What is that? It's a comparison. It's rooting to make me feel better because I didn't do that, but they did. And so what we're doing is the same thing that Simon doing does here. It's the same heart condition. 
And so I want you to see what Jesus says in the midst of this, what he tells and the way he brings this to light. And so pick up with what Jesus says in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so think about the, the, the context here. He's the young rabbi that they've kind of ignored and they put him over here in the corner and they're kind of poking fun at him. And Jesus finally says, OK, I have something to say. And then he says this, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss the time I came in, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with her ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so I want you to see what Jesus does here. Simon's looking down on her. He's looking down on Jesus. He is rooted in these comparisons, trying to make himself look better. And Jesus calls out the heart issue that's at the bottom of that. And he tells this story. And I want you to notice the way he does it with Simon. Simon's been incredibly rude to Jesus. He's been incredibly disrespectful. He's been ugly to this woman. He's kind of making a spectacle of it. And yet Jesus graciously begins to tell this story. And he tells the story of two debtors and he starts to draw some comparisons between Simon and the woman in these two debtors. He says they have two debts. One is larger, one is smaller. And then the master forgives them. And then he goes and he starts to show them how it pertains to them. And so do you see that in the story there? The, the larger debtor that he's talking about, he's obviously drawing a line to the woman that's wetting his feet. And the one who has a smaller debt, he's obviously talking about Simon. He's drawing those lines there. And I want you to think about what he says in the story about what the debt represents. Do you see that in the story? If you follow it through and he says a greater debt and a smaller debt and she's like the woman and like you. And then he gets down and he says, uh, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Right? And so you see the, the lines being drawn there. The debt that he's talking about is our sin. And so what he does is he tells this story and he draws those lines out. And what he shows us is he gets down to the very heart of the comparison. And what's underneath it is that Simon has forgotten something very important. And I say it's the same thing that we've forgotten when we begin to make those comparisons. And we begin to belittle other people or we begin to talk down about this group over here because they believe these things and I'm not like that. See, when Jesus tells the story, he says there are two debtors and they both owed a debt. And then look at what verse 42 says. Jesus says when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And what we forget is that we, all of us, are sinners and we all have a debt that we can never, ever pay. Ever. And oftentimes we forget that. Or we'll say, yes, I believe that. I am saved by faith. And it's Jesus, but then we twist it. 
And I think the way that we twist it is we then say, yeah, but I didn't have as many debts as that person over there. And what we do is we wrongly believe that grace is God making up the difference. Like I was pretty good and you were way down here and then God just had to make up this little bit for me, but he had to make a a whole lot for you. That's not grace. Anything good or worthy or righteous that brings glory to God in my life is because of the grace of God and nothing else. All of it. I don't have a leg to stand on if you're going to say, look at my good works and then Jesus met me halfway. That's a lie. And Simon's believing that. If you knew who this woman was that was touching you, she's a sinner. Well, Jesus then tells him the story and he goes, yes, so are you. You desperately need me just like she does. You have a debt that you can't pay just like she has a debt that she can't pay. And I tell you that that's all of us. And when we start to function that way of looking down on certain people, I can't believe those people. What do you mean those people? That's, that's all of us. We all have a debt that we cannot pay. And when we begin to think that way, we, we've gotten a gospel amnesia. We've forgotten what the grace of God means in our life. That it's only ever what God's done for us and nothing else. By grace, you have been saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. That levels the playing field. No one comes to a relationship with God except by the grace of Christ and nothing else. And so grace is undeserved merit. God giving you that which you didn't deserve. And so when I go, hey, look at what I've done. It's like, yeah, I've accepted the grace of God in my life. That's what I've done. Which means God did all of it for me. And so when we begin to see that and we come back to that, this idea that, oh, that sinner over there goes away. That sinner over there is me. And it's you and it's all of us. And we desperately need the grace of God in our life. And so when we begin to make those comparisons and we begin to distort it or we begin to think it's just God making up the difference, it leads us to putting these things in different categories and in different ways and looking down on certain people. I'm always so struck by the end of Galatians 5 where it tells us if we're walking by the Spirit, we're not going to look up at certain people or down on certain people. And so what that tells me is when I walk around making comparisons and going, at least I'm not like those people, I'm not walking by the Spirit. That's my flesh that wants to do that. That wants to go, yeah, I'm better than that person. No, I'm not. Forgiven by grace and what Christ does and nothing else. And so he begins to show Simon that here. And he's showing him the heart. What he's doing is coming out of a heart condition. He says, you didn't welcome me and you didn't kiss me. And you didn't do all these things because you were so busy comparing and trying to put me down to make yourself look better. And when we do that, when we begin to try to self-justify by what we do, I would submit to you that we take Jesus off his throne and he's no longer our savior and our Lord. He's just a guide who gives us some advice. If you've ever considered that before. 
when I'm justifying myself by what I do, then Jesus is a good guide who helps me live a better life, but he's not my savior. And when we function that way, Jesus's voice becomes one among many because he's no longer our savior. We've removed him from his throne. And then now I start to get myself by worth by what people say to me rather than who Jesus says I am. Because he's now been taken down a notch. And I would just submit to you that if. If what God says in his word in the New Testament about who Jesus is, it makes no sense for him just to be your helper. It makes no sense for him just to be a guide who gives you advice. It makes no sense for him to be one voice among the many. C.S. Lewis kind of famously summarized that in his, his lunatic liar or Lord. Jesus is either stark raving mad because he thinks he's God. Or he's a liar who knows he's not God, but he's trying to dupe you into it. Or he's who he says he is. And that means he is the Lord of the universe in any way you take that, whether he's crazy whether he's a liar, if he's either one of those things, why are you listening to him anyway? But if he's Lord, it makes no sense to listen to him as one voice among many. What he says goes and what he says matters more than anything else. And when we begin to function out of. It's my works. I'm making Jesus my helper. He just gives me some things that I can do and then it's on me to do it. But when we begin to see him for who he is, that he is the one that can forgive us. He is the Lord. He is the one that holds all things together. I don't have to worry about what everybody else says. His voice now is elevated to its rightful place. And what he says matters more than what anybody else says. And I can rest in that. And I can be freed from comparisons. I can be freed from seeking to belittle other people to make myself feel better because I'm already accepted completely and totally by the one who loves me, my creator. And that's exactly what happens with this woman here. I want you to think about how embarrassing that scene must have been for her. She comes into this place where all these people are obviously looking down on her. I mean, the, the, the host is even saying if you knew who that was, you wouldn't let her near you. And what does she do? She is weeping tears over the forgiveness she's found in Christ. Washing his feet, not caring what anyone thinks. And he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She gets it the best in this whole story. Right? Simon's still caught in his comparisons and looking down on people. But she's like, I just want to be near Jesus. And this is where he meets me in the middle of that. And he tells me I'm forgiven and he loves me and I can go in peace. And she does. You see, when we put Jesus in his rightful place and we see that our forgiveness, our identity, who we are is rooted and grounded in Jesus. And it frees us from all that other stuff. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to compare ourselves to other people. I am saved by what Jesus has done for me. By faith through grace. And what Christ has done. And I can rest in that. 
It doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'm still going to blow it at different times. I'm still going to fall back into comparisons. But then I can be reminded when God says, you're my beloved child and I love you completely and totally. And you don't have to do that. Oh, yeah. I don't have to do that. I can rest now in who I am in Jesus. And you see that exact same thing happening here as he does that. When we recognize that Jesus isn't one voice among many, but that he is the ultimate reality and his voice is more important than any other's. We can lay all those other things down and we can come directly to him and find our rest. And it's such a beautiful picture of how Jesus responds. We know about him all the way throughout the Gospels. He wants Simon to see this. He's going, Simon, come on, man. Do you see what you can have in me? And we all slip back and forth in that. And Jesus stands there reminding us over and over, you don't have to do that. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can find your identity and your worth in me, and you can lay all those other things aside. I tell you, it's wonderful when you do. You don't have to walk around comparing yourself. You don't have to walk around looking. It frees you to actually love people. You don't have to use people to make yourself look better because you're safe in God's love right there in Christ. What a wonderful gift He gives us. And it's all what He's done for us. So let's pray. God, we thank You for the glorious picture of Your grace. That You love us so much that You meet us in the midst of that. Uh, I I pray right now specifically for, for each person who's here that has those voices in their head. Whether they're internal from themselves or or those from the past of, of different things that they're not good enough or they haven't measured up or the things, the, the lies that we believe that we're attacked with, I pray that we would lay those at your feet today. That you tell us that we're forgiven by what you've done for us by faith through the abundant grace of Jesus that we can be forgiven completely and totally and we don't have to live in those comparisons. And I pray that you would make that afresh to our hearts today, that you would apply them to us. I pray for, for the ones specifically here this morning that are, that are struggling with comparisons, that are struggling with what other people think of them, that you would show them completely that, that you alone, your voice matters as their creator and redeemer, the one that holds us together, that we can rest in your love and what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.